So I wonder, what do you think of when you hear the word worship? When you hear that word, what comes to mind? Maybe you envision flashing lights and loud music. Maybe a band leading and people singing and arms swaying, bodies lifting, right? Maybe that's what you have in mind when you think of worship. Maybe not here so much, but maybe elsewhere. Or maybe your image of worship is a bit more subdued, less concert-like, and maybe more choir-like. So you might think of robes and rimmed glasses. Instead of sort of doing this, people are more doing this. Maybe that's what you think about when you think of worship. Or, or maybe you think of more smells and bells. Maybe candles and incense and an organ. Perhaps a medieval chant in a monastery. What do you think when you hear that word, worship? Friends, how are we to think about worship this morning? Is worship a feeling or is it an action? Is worship merely what we do with our lips or is worship about our everyday lives? Is it what takes place up here on the platform or is worship happening out there in the pew? Is it what happens one hour on Sunday or is worship meant to be what happens every day? Is worship ours to create or is it God's himself to dictate? Friends, how are we to think about worship? Well, those are some of the questions I want us to be considering as we return in our study this morning to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. Let me invite you to turn there now to Numbers chapters 3 and 4. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided in the seat back before you, I just realized I forgot to write down the number. So does someone want to shout out the number there in the red Bibles? Numbers 3 and 4. 110. Yeah, 110, okay, right around 110, you'll find it, numbers 3 and 4. Now, if you're just joining us this morning, uh, last week we started a series in this old and often overlooked book of Numbers. For many, we noted Numbers as part of sort of the Bible's flyover district, right? It's what you sort of jump over, it's what you skip over to get to the good stuff. But as I trust we'll see, I hope as you saw last week, numbers, Numbers is actually meant for you and Numbers is meant for me. Because it's all about this people caught between two ages. Between the age of salvation and consummation. Redemption and final rest. Though it often feels like Israel is wandering aimlessly in the desert, we're going to see God is in fact guiding them toward heaven. Now last week we saw how God's people were to stand up and be counted Right, last week was a, a call to fight. It was a universal draft. Now in chapters 3 to 4, what we're going to do is we're going we're to hone in on that one tribe that was exempted from the draft, the Levites. And Numbers is going to give us more insights into this tribe, the Levites, than any other Old Testament book. So if you look down with me to chapter 3, verse 8, we see that the Levites are those who, chapter 3, verse 8, shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. So that expression, to keep guard, is 
all throughout chapter 3. We're going to come across that expression maybe 11 times just in chapter 3. For that's one of the key roles of the Levites, right? They're to keep guard over the tabernacle and thus protect the people. But then as we we shift on to chapter 4, we're going to zoom in a bit further and just look at the Levitical men, ages 30 to 50, who are tasked with what we might call moving day. So when the people move throughout the wilderness, we're going to see the tabernacle, this portable tent, is meant to move with them. So who breaks down that tent? Who has what responsibilities, right? Who carries what? How are the pieces to be cataloged? How are they to be packed? Where do all the poles and the bases go? Right, that's what chapter 4 is about. It's a bit like reading a detailed instruction manual and like how to put a piece of furniture together, only in reverse. So chapter 3 is how the Levites keep guard over the tabernacle when it's stationary. Chapter 4 is how they're to carry the tabernacle when it's on the move. All in great, and if you read it this week, perhaps at times mind-numbing detail. Let's be a bit honest. It's a little tough. But if we step back, here's what I want you to see. If chapters 1 and 2 are all about how God is organizing Israel for war, chapters 3 and 4 are all about how God is organizing Israel for worship. How he's organizing them for worship. And what will these two chapters have to teach us about worship? Just the plain, simple idea that God's people worship his way. You know, to summarize chapters 3 and 4, God's people worship his way. And from that, I want us to draw three lessons. And if you're a note taker, these are three points. Lesson one, God consecrates our worship. Lesson two, God prescribes our worship. And lesson three, God redeems our worship. So God consecrates our worship. He prescribes our worship. He redeems our worship. So let's go ahead and dive in. First lesson, God consecrates our worship. He consecrates our worship. And what I mean by that is he consecrates his people for worship. Now to consecrate just means to set apart for service, right? To devote something or someone to a sacred purpose. In other words, God's people we're seeing are being set apart for worship. So look down with me, chapter 3. Just look there to verse 1. Chapter 3 of Numbers, verse 1. These are the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These are the names of the sons of Aaron. Nadab the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests whom he ordained to serve as priests. And let's just stop right there. Okay, so that word ordained in Hebrew is really just a Hebrew idiom that means to set apart for service. Elsewhere, the same idiom is used as consecrate. That's where I'm getting that image of consecration. So Aaron and his sons, right, they have been set apart. They have been consecrated to serve as priests right there in the worship of the tabernacle. But friends, it's not just Aaron and his sons that have been set apart and consecrated. Look down with me to chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. We read there. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated for my own all the firstborn in Israel, both of man and of beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. Now, at first glance, it can be easy to miss what's happening here. But that's one of the reasons why I wanted Logan to read to you from Exodus 13 earlier in the service. Because when God, as we read earlier, struck down the firstborn of Egypt, he chose to pass over the firstborn of Israel. And in passing over the firstborn of Israel, he consecrated them. He set them apart. The firstborn now belong to God. And why? Well, because he spared their lives. He saved them. He redeemed them. Thus, they are his. But now we're seeing God is providing a substitute for the firstborn among Israel. And that substitute is the entire tribe of the Levites. They are meant, the Levites, to take the place of the firstborn in Israel. The Levites now, therefore, belong to him, to God, to serve him. And that's what the rest of chapter 3 describes. How Levi and correspondingly his three sons and all of their offspring are given a particular duty. They've been set aside, right, sacred for a particular duty and task. So we read Gershon, the oldest son, and all the clans under him are commissioned to care. If you look chapter 3, verse 25, what's their duty with Gershon? In the guard duty, we read 325. Of the sons of Gershon in the tent of meeting involves the tabernacle, the tent with its covering, the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the court, the screen for the door of the court. Right, we can keep going, but you can just think of all this as like the software. Right? This is all the stuff you can fold up, right? Curtains and so forth. Now, Kohath, the second son, he's given, verse 31, chapter 3, we see he's given the sacred things to care for, the ark. The table, the lampstand, the altars, right, all the vessels of the sanctuary, that's for Kohath, the second son of Levi. And then Merari, uh, the third son, he's given, verse 36, what? He's given the hardware, you might say. The frames, the bars, the pillars, the bases of the tabernacle. And then chapter 4, right, we see what happens when moving day arrives. Because everything will be need to be broken down. And we read that Aaron and his sons, well, they're to pack all the sacred things. And the Kohathites are then to carry them. Chapter 4, verse 15. Look there. Chapter 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out, after that the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. And then what do we read? Of course, the Gershonites, verse 21 of chapter 4. They're going to break down and carry all the software, right? The tent, the hangings, the curtains. Then the Merites, again, they take their place, chapter 4, verse 29. They're going to break down all the hardware, the pegs, the poles, the bases, and so forth. So friends, what I want you to notice in all of this is the division of labor among their worship. Each 
has clear duties and each has distinct responsibilities. And friends, that's made explicit, for example, chapter 4, verse 19. Look at the second half. We read there, chapter 4, verse 19, second half, that Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden. And then jump to the very end of chapter 4, the very last verse, chapter 4, verse 49. After listing all the working Levites, we read 449, according to the commandment of the Lord, through Moses, they were listed, each one with his task of serving or carrying. Thus they were listed by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Friends, part of what I want you to see from this is that worship is not a spectator sport. Worship is not a spectator sport. Nobody in these chapters is simply watching from the stands, right? Popcorn in hand. No, they're all involved. All the Levites are in the game. They all have something to do. So no notion of of those in the pews kind of slipping in and slipping out with no task at hand. Right? Everybody has a role to play and everybody has a job to do. Because, friends, Christians, we too have been consecrated, have been set apart, set aside for service. You and I, we have been saved for worship. So I wonder, my Christian friend, in what ways, if any, you have conceived of Christianity as a kind of spectator sport? Have you conceived of it as a kind of spectator sport? Ask yourself, when you come on Sunday mornings like this, do you come, do you come to sing? Do you come to participate? Or do you come to listen to others sing? Or do you come to sing those songs perhaps that only you like? And maybe you find yourself there sitting in the seat backs critiquing the performance of oh, that song Right, that song's a bit antiquated, that tune drags, right? Those drums are too loud, whatever it might be. Do you come to pray when we gather? Do you come to pray or do you come simply to listen to others pray? And maybe critique those prayers as too long or too reedy or whatever it might be. Part of what we're seeing in Numbers 3 to 4 is that worship isn't simply about ritual and song but it is about lives that are wholly given over to the Lord. Right? It's not just what we do on Sunday. It is what is done every day. And perhaps it was this very vision of an image of the Levites and all their division of labor. All of the guarding and the lifting and the carrying and all the laboring and the sweating and the service of the tabernacle. Perhaps it was that very image that led Paul himself to write in Romans 12, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Because recognize Romans 12.1 is a perfect description of what the Levites are doing here in chapters 3 and 4, presenting their bodies as living sacrifices. You see, the the image of Christianity we get in the Bible is not one of these sort of individual partitions. Like, in my life, God has his partition, that part that he gets. 
And then there's that sliver that goes to, to work and that sliver that goes to school and, and all the rest that goes to me and my hobbies or what have you. That's not the image we get in the Bible. No, the idea is that we are to live all of our lives in the presence of God and all of our lives under the authority of God and all of our lives for the honor and for the glory of God. That's how they were meant to live. That's, friends, that's how we're meant to live. That's what Christianity, biblical Christianity, that's what it's about. And friends, notice the Levites were meant to do all of this together. All this together. And when working well, it's this beautiful, harmonious picture of interdependent and supported relationships. If you think about it, it's actually a beautiful picture of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Where the church is compared to a body, a kind of physical body. And he's going to say in the same way that the physical body will have eyes and ears and hands and feet and mouths in order to function properly. So the church body needs this diversity of gifts in order for it to function properly. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing, this diversity of roles and responsibilities for the Levites and for the worship of the people to function properly. Which means, friends, that's how it's meant to be amongst us, right? There's a very good reason why Corey Meyer is the deacon of building and grounds and not me. You can ask my wife what happens if you put a drill in my hand. Nothing constructive happens. There's a good reason why Stephen Martin oversees administration and not me. There's a really good reason why Ryan and Guy lead music and not me. We're gifted differently. And every part of the body has its place and its role. Now, of course, all of this, friends, presumes that you're actually part of a local body. All of this presumes you're part of a local church, which is a good reason, just a little plug to join one if you haven't. But it's also why, more than that, you need to be involved in the body, right? Not a spectator, but a participant. It could be, friends, in just setting out Bibles to make sure that if we have visitors, and I forget the page number, you've got a Bible there, you can call it out, or someone who's never read the Bible but comes into a service can open one up and read God's word for themselves. It could be cleaning up after the Lord's Supper. It could be helping with parking or greeting or singing or teaching or serving in nursery. Right? The point is there are scores of ways and we are all meant to play. We've been consecrated and set apart for worship. And what makes it glorious is not what we do, but who we do it for. That is what makes it glorious. We do it unto him. We've been consecrated, set apart for worship. But I want us to see a second lesson. God also, he prescribes our worship. That's our second lesson. God prescribes our worship. So turn back with me, if you will, to the opening chapter of verse 3. The opening chapter there of verse 3. Uh, sorry, uh, chapter 3, opening verses. All right, we're introduced, chapter 3, verse 1. Introduced to Aaron, we're introduced to his four sons. Those four sons serve as priests. Now, when you hear that word priest, right, priests were those who represented the people before the Lord. So in the tabernacle, priests that office within Israel, they represented the people before the Lord. 
And yet prophets, right, a different office of the Old Testament, prophets represented the Lord before the people. So one bore the sins of the people, namely priests. The other brought the scriptures to the people. Those were the prophets. Now, listen, in most vocations, if you make a small error, it's not too costly. Most vocations, a small error won't cost much. So if you are a server and you mess up someone's order and you deliver their meat medium instead of medium rare, they might be a little upset. You might have to bring it back to the kitchen. They might have to redo it, but no one's going to die over it. All right, if you're an investment manager and you bet on a bad stock, Yes, maybe your client loses a little bit of money, but if you've got a good, nice, diversified portfolio, no one's jumping out of a window. All right, if you're a plumber and you don't get a fitting right, maybe there's a water leak, but nothing that can't finally be repaired. Nobody ends up in the grave. And friends, you may think of priests very similarly. Right, certainly the priesthood, you hear that word, that doesn't strike you as a risky profession. The priesthood doesn't strike you, perhaps, me, as a dangerous profession. But look down with me to chapter 3. We're given the name of Aaron's four sons, verse 2, Nadab, the firstborn, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, right, all those he ordained to serve as priests. And think about that, what a privilege to be a son of Aaron, to have Moses as your uncle, to serve there in the tabernacle of the Lord. What an honor. But friends, it takes a horrible turn in verse 4. We read verse 4, but Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai, and they had no children. I mean, just like that, we go from exaltation, right, to utter devastation. Aaron's two oldest sons are killed. And without children means Aaron's line, his whole family line has been cut in half. Like, poof, up in smoke, just like that, literally. That's what happens. Now, What happened particularly there when they offered that sort of unauthorized fire, verse 4? Well, if you want to go to Leviticus 10, you can actually read more uh, in more detail about this account. But it seems that Nadab and Abihu, they took their censer, this, this bowl in which incense was burned, and they lit that bowl of incense with fire that was not from the altar. It was fire that was from some other unauthorized source. And as a result of that act, there in the temple or the tabernacle, they were burned up with fire themselves. Now perhaps you're thinking, oh my word, like what's the big deal? I mean, fire is fire. I mean, does it really matter if the coals were kosher? It can feel like a a kind of technicality. And they die over it. But friends, here's part of what we need to see. There are no technicalities with a holy God. There are none with a holy God. And that's part of what this story is again revealing to us. That God is holy. Piercingly and terrifyingly holy. You know, plutonium is one of the most dangerous elements in the world. And there was, years ago, a a physicist there in Los Alamos Laboratory named Louis Sloten. 
And he was doing some experiments there in the laboratory. And he inadvertently dropped a screwdriver. And there was instantly a blue flash and a dose of lethal radiation. And the kindest way to describe what happened to him was a three-dimensional sunburn. He literally burned from the inside out. And he was dead in but days. Friends, God's not radioactive. But in our sin, he is lethal. He's lethal. It's why, remember, the Levites, what were they to do? They were to stand guard around the tabernacle. That expression, stand guard, used over and over in chapter 3. They were to guard the people, remember, from whom? From the Lord. That's what the people needed, guarding from this holy God. It's why, if you read the passage this week, you notice this hauntingly similar refrain. So I'm just going to read some verses to you. Numbers chapter 3, verse 10. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Numbers 3:38. And any outsider who comes near was to be put to death. Numbers 4:15. The Kohathites, right? They were to carry the holy things. But we read, they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. Not only can they not touch them, we're going to read they can't even look at them. Numbers 4.18, let not the tribe of the clans of Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. We have that expression, right? Curiosity killed the cat. Well, friends, the kind of curiosity that might have led one of these Levites just to peek behind that curtain, just to, to grab a look for one second, friends, that kills, we see much more than cats, that can kill an entire congregation. You know, as we get on into numbers, we're going to see the sins of the Levites. They will have tragic consequences for all the people. And the people's sins against the people will have tragic consequences as well. It's why they're to keep guard. Friends, my point is, one doesn't play carelessly with holy things and survive. They don't. You and I, we cannot saunter into the presence of a holy God and expect to survive. God is piercingly and frighteningly, and in our sin, he is lethally holy. And friends, part of what we're seeing as well, even in this image, in this story, is, is actually how every sin, however small it may seem before God, every sin is deserving of death. Every sin, however small, deserving of death which strikes us as severe. But friends, that only strikes us as severe because we have so domesticated God and we have so normalized sin. So what happens? We become casual to the things of God and we take the things of God for granted. We forget who he is. We assume God is like us. We shrink God down to size and we forget that he is, as Nadab and Abihu tragically forgot, we forget that God is a consuming fire. 
And friends, what's frightening is just how easy this is to do. You know, in Exodus 24, 9, we read that Nadab and Abihu, these two characters, that they, along with Moses and Aaron, and along with the 70 elders, they had gone up to Mount Sinai, and Nadab and Abihu had, we read, they had beheld God. They had beheld God. They had witnessed God in all of his glory and all of his splendor and beauty, a glory unlike anything in all the universe. They themselves had seen it. You know, when we lived in D.C., there was a member of the church who, who was an astronaut there within the congregation, and he commanded multiple subtle missions uh, out into space, and he says, you know, all astronauts, they'll say the same thing. You never forget what it's like to behold earth from outer space, right? That image, as beautiful and awe-inspiring as it is, right, it's seared into your memory, more magical than anything you can describe, they say. And yet, friends, there's something about us, something about us and our sin that deletes God's glory from our minds. Even when we behold it, we still find ways to suppress it. Such that Nadab and Abihu, who had witnessed God's glory, again, in all of its glory, all of its beauty, all of its splendor, they were able, even just a short time later, these two were able to treat God casually and flippantly, like some you know, domesticated household pet. You know, perhaps Nadab and Abihu thought, you know what, we're, we're Aaron's sons after all. You know, look at, our, look at our dad's pedigree. Look at what our parents have won for us. Maybe they were pointing to their religious privileges. Perhaps they assumed all that would be a shield around them somehow. But friends, I think that's one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 10, to those who imagine that they're standing firm, he says, be careful that you do not fall. Because we can't stand, friends, on the faith of our parents. We can't stand on a profession we once made. We can't even point back to our baptism. Our hope is not that God graves, grades on a curve, right? God doesn't grade on a curve. None of those things can save, right? None of those things, friends, can protect you. You can't stand on them. You will fall upon them. But part of what we're seeing as well is that God prescribes how he's to be worshipped. God doesn't just leave it up to us. You know, in some ways, that's what all these chapters, chapters 3 and 4, that's what these chapters are about. God instructing his people exactly how they're to worship him. So the, the division of labor, right, the careful assignments, exactly who is to carry what, the precision of how the tabernacle is to be broken down, the order, all the careful attention to detail, how nothing is to be missed, how everything is going to happen and must happen according to plan. Right? There's a lesson in all of that. God is prescribing how he's to be worshipped. We don't invent how God's to be worshipped. No, he instructs us how he's to be worshipped. Friends, this, if you're unfamiliar, this is what we just call the regulative principle for worship. The idea that God himself regulates, right? He gives rules about how we are to approach him. 
And friends, that is a principle just soaked all over the pages of the Bible. So you just look right at Genesis 4. You look at Cain and Abel. And we learn that there are some offerings that are acceptable and some that are not. Or you think of the second commandment, where we're not to make any carved images. Right there, what do we learn? Some worship is prohibited. And that's a principle that is later illustrated graphically with the golden calf. We see that same principle here with Nadab and Abihu. We thought about it even last Sunday night. You know, Debbie Wright asked about Uzzah and the ark in 2 Samuel 6. That's when the Kohathites were, were carrying the ark, right? And, and they stumbled, and Uzzah threw out his hand to support the ark. Friend, was that a holy act of heroism on Uzzah's part? Well, no. We're told that it's a supreme act of pride and presumption because God has explicitly told his people time and time again, even as we read, you must not touch the holy things or even look at them. Uzzah ignored that command, and his sin was at least in assuming that his hand was somehow less polluted than the dirt. But God said, you know what, it would have been better if my ark had fallen in the dirt than you had reached out to grab it. Even 1 Corinthians 11. You know, we read in there that some in Corinth were taking the Lord's Supper, and they were eating, we read, without discerning the body and blood of the Lord, eating in an unworthy manner. And it turns out that eating in an unworthy manner is not such a minor manner because people are getting sick and some people there in the congregation are actually dying. Point being, in our corporate worship together, as God's people, we are only to do that which is explicitly commanded or implied in Scripture. That's part of what we're seeing even here. So recognize if you're visiting with us this morning and you're stepping in and you're like, this is a strange sermon out of Numbers 3 and 4. And maybe you've been in this service and think, this is an unusual service for me. Well, you might think, you know, it's, it's a bit boring. It's kind of simple. It's really word heavy. Well, this isn't like our attempt just to forever live in the 16th century. That's not why we do worship like this here. It's also not that like every week I'm trying to pay homage to Puritan Sunday. Right? That's not what we're trying to do either. Now, the Puritans are great. They get a bad rap. Don't listen to your English teacher in high school. Don't read Nathaniel Hawthorne. He hated Christianity. No wonder he talked so badly about him. Different story. Point being, all right, point being, when Jesus says, wherever two or three gather in my name, there I am among them, that's not a reference to small groups or camp gatherings or Christians on a campus somewhere. That's actually a reference right there to the corporate gathering of God's people for worship. And when we gather in his name and under his authority, which is what's directed at right there in his name, we do only what God prescribes us to do. Which is why in our services, we do just what we find clearly commanded or modeled for us in scripture. So what do we do? We sing the word. And we pray the word. And we hear the word read. And we hear the word preached. And we see the word in the celebration of baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Because, friends, that's just what the Bible commands us to do. And so when we gather, that is what we do. Even if you've ever noticed, the announcements, they come before the call to worship. Which is the formal start of our service. Because there's no explicit command to do things like that. right? So we just put it beforehand. That's just our desire to worship as God commands. 
Now listen, it would probably be a lot more exciting if what we had going on in here was a big dance performance, right? Or if we had a, a massive, awesome concert, or maybe some drama, or we watched a movie, right? That, that would be fun. No doubt more people might come. I love movies, friends. I love to be entertained. But that doesn't necessarily mean we've worshipped as God desires us and defines it for us. Now listen, you talk about this regular principle for worship, and what do you all think? What do I initially think? Oh, that's so restrictive. It's like putting handcuffs on us. We can only do these specific things, and we, we can't have fun when we gather. Well, that's not what it's meant to be. So if you've ever been to a highly charismatic church, and maybe there were some unusual things happening, which happened once when I was in college, where there was holy laughter and people barking like dogs and running up and down the aisles, if you've ever been to a service like that, a doctrine like this you'll actually find quite liberating. Because what it says is we don't have to worship God in all the ways you might devise, but just in the ways that God has required. It's actually quite liberating if you think about it. It frees us from the bondage and whims of men, all of whom, myself included, you included, we're all prone to idolatry in our own way. And friends, recognize there's two ways to commit idolatry. To worship something other than God, that's idolatry. But you know what else is idolatry? To worship God in the wrong way. That too is idolatry. And the risk, of course, is that we all love novelty. We all love what's new. We have an impulse for it. I love what's cutting edge. I love what's new. I like to read about new technology and new fads and new trends. But friends, novelty rarely serves the church well. It has a way of taking our attention off of God and putting it, in fact, onto us. So C.S. Lewis had a humorous reflection on this very thing, this love for novelty. And I may have quoted it before, but it's worthwhile. He writes, C.S. Lewis does of novelty, particularly with regard, to the, with regard to the gathering. Lewis writes that novelty is a way of fixing our attention not on the service, but on the celebrant. He says, you know what I mean. I mean, try as one may to exclude it, but the question naturally becomes, what on earth are they up to now? Novelty lays one's devotion to waste. I wish they'd remember that the charge to Peter was feed my sheep, not try experiments on my rats. Right at the end of the day, the regular principle frees us from the tyranny of other people's silly creativity. And think about it. If our redemption was so costly, should we treat the celebration of it so lightly? Now that doesn't mean what we do should be a dirge in here. There is nothing, and hear me really clearly, there is nothing spiritual about joyless worship. And that can be a little tricky because some of us have our space. If you've seen Hitch, Will Smith, right, you know the scene where he's teaching them how to dance. This is my space right here. My wife, she's making pizzas. Right? We all have our own way of expressing ourselves decently and in order. Right? Point being, friends, reverent worship Reverent worship that lacks joy is as much an abomination as joyful worship that lacks reverence. 
But unlike the golden calf incident, where everyone was just worshiping as they wanted to, right? we, we see, are to worship as God has called us to, and we're to worship according to his word. But friends, not only does God consecrate us for worship, prescribe how we're to worship, but third and final lesson, God redeems our worship. He redeems our worship. And this brings us back to the establishment of the Levites, the redemption of the firstborn. For there, what did we see? We saw that the Levites were to be what? Substituted for the firstborn of Israel. They were to serve, chapter 3, in their stead. To serve in their stead, in their place. And that issue of the Levites serving in place of the firstborn of Israel, that's going to resurface again later in chapter 3, verse 40. So chapter 3, verse 40, we return to this. The firstborn and the Levites serving in their stead. And we read in verse 42 that Moses listed all the firstborn among the people of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the firstborn males, according to the number of names from a month old and upward, is listed as 22,273. All right, so here's the dilemma. And if you read through the passage this week, this part may have totally thrown you. The dilemma is that there are, we read, 22,273 firstborn males in Israel. But according to chapter 3, verse 39, there are only 22,000 Levites. So there's 273 firstborn males for whom there is not a Levite to substitute for them, to take their place. Now, we might think, you know what, 273 amongst a whopping 22,000, that's really close. But friends, what have we seen? Close is not good enough with God. There must be a substitute for every man, one for one. And are you beginning to see something of the spiritual lesson? In order for Israel to be redeemed, there must be a substitute. Someone who could stand in their place. And when that wasn't possible for these 273, what was the solution? A redemption price had to be paid. Verse 46, chapter 3. And as the redemption price for the 273 of the firstborn of the people of Israel, over and above the number of male Levites, you shall take five shekels per head. Redemption price. Again, do you see how this is already going to help us understand the ministry of Jesus Christ? For he would be the one who would come and who would serve as the substitute for his people. He was the one who would come and, and take their place, serve in their stead. And then he would be the one who would come and purchase their redemption. He would pay the price, not with money we know, but with the cost of his very own life. So Jesus came to make unholy people holy. He came, Jesus did, to qualify the unqualified before God. For those who ought to die in God's presence, what would Jesus do? He would wrap them in robes of his righteousness and he would shield them and protect them and secure them and win them for God. Friends, that's what this tabernacle, it's what it's all about at the end of the day. All the altars, right, the priests, the sacrifices, such things exist. Why? 
Because sin exists. The tabernacle's very presence, as we read, friends, that critiques us. It criticizes us as criminals. And yet it's also there that the people will find their substitute. And it will be there where their ransom is paid. So if you've come here this morning and you're not a Christian, recognize you need a substitute. You need a substitute. As a sinner, you must have someone to stand in your stead before this holy God. And you also need someone who will pay your ransom. To pay the price for your sinful life. And friends, that also is exactly what Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus hung as a substitute for his people. And there on the cross, he paid the debts of his people. And he redeemed us for God so that if we repent of our sins and believe in God, we can be reconciled to God through this substitute and redeemer. My non-Christian friend, have you repented of your sins? Have you believed in this Jesus? And through him, have you been reconciled to God? Or are you somehow vainly hoping that you can saunter into God's presence and somehow not be smote? I mean, remember Nadab and Abihu. We have no confidence we can do that. That will not end well for us. So don't delay, right? Repent and believe. The Levites... If they were here in their day and age, if you're a non-Christian, the Levites would cry out to you and they would say, keep away lest you die. And yet, friends, Jesus cries out to you, come to me for I have died. Will you come to him? You know, if you're a Christian, notice just like the Levites, Jesus didn't substitute himself for some nameless mass of humanity. No, he substituted himself one for one, man for man. And just like the Levites, he didn't write a blank redemption check for all. No, on that cross, Jesus died for his people. He paid the specific price for every person. No more and no less. Jesus didn't just make salvation possible, he made it actual, and he accomplished it all perfectly and in full. Friends, see right here particular redemption. And if you're in Christ, it's because Jesus has died specifically for you by name that you can be assured this morning that he knows you, that he will not forget you, that this Jesus won't give up on you, but he will keep you to the end. You know, I asked at the opening, I asked what you envision when you hear that word worship. I wonder how you might answer that question now. Would you answer that question now any differently than you would have when you walked through these doors this morning? Because I hope I've helped you see that in Numbers 3 and 4, worship, it's far more than a feeling. Worship is action. It's about what we do. And not merely with our lips. Worship is about what we do with our entire lives. And not just some of us. Not just that what takes place here on the platform. But all of us down into the very pews are to worship. 
And not just on Sunday, but like the Levites, we're to live for him every day. And as Nadab and Abihu tragically discovered, worship is not ours to create. It's God's himself to dictate. True worship is possible because of Christ and through Christ. He redeems, finally, our worship. So I ask you, how then will you worship? How will you worship amongst us? How will you give of yourself to this body? How will you be not merely a spectator but a participant in the worship of God's people? And how might that look differently even this week? Let's pray. Oh God, we give you praise for your word. And we confess when we come to it, we often come and read and we can be perplexed. Or we come and read and our hearts are heavy for the things that we read. And we wonder if it's, what, if it's communicating to us is really what we think it's communicating to us. And yet, God, we see in your word at the same time the beauty of it. And so we pray as your people that have been born anew by that word, that we would submit ourselves to it and see that as a gracious expression of our love for your son, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.